I have a problem. Specifically, when it comes to the things of earth or creation. And I would bet that many of you, if not all of you, can track with this same problem. I have a biblical problem and an experiential one. The Bible clearly indicates that we are to worship and desire God alone. Psalm 73 tells us that there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you, the psalmist said, or in Psalm 27, 4. There is one thing that I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says that we ought to set our minds on the things that are above, not on things that are below. We are to seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Philippians 3, 1 through 8, Paul tells us that he counts everything as loss compared to the supreme worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He even compares them to dung or excrement. They are completely useless to him, all things, if he may but have Christ. The Bible also clearly indicates that we are to enjoy the gifts that God gives us. Song of Songs explores the wonders and joys and pleasures of marital love. In chapter 4, we have a very vivid depiction of the beauty of the bride. And in verse 9, he says, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. How much better is your love than wine? Ecclesiastes, while the overall tone of the book communicates the idea that life under the sun is completely meaningless, says in chapter 3, 12, and 14 that we ought to take pleasure in our toil and be joyful and eat, drink, and be merry, for this is a gift from God. For Timothy 4, we read that everything that is created is good and is to be received as such if it is received with thanksgiving. And so, it seems that the Bible maintains this same tension that I feel in my heart. And I hope you do too. God is great and glorious. He is the most supremely valuable being in the universe. There is nothing that compares to Him. And He calls us to worship Him alone and even to desire nothing in the entire universe beside Him. And yet, He has given us a lot of really great things. He has given us sunsets and sunrises. He has given us mountains and waterfalls. He has given us the plains of Africa, the jungles of the Amazon, the oceans around the world, and the long, flat road of I-16. 
He has given us Chipotle burritos and Buffalo wild wings. He has given us husbands and wives. He has given us lots and lots of children. He has given us spike ball and a host of other sports. He's even given us golf. He's given us bodies that can run and jump. And he's given us good books and great movies and billions of stars and planets. And he's given us a universe whose depths cannot be plumbed by the imagination and the ingenuity of man. What are we supposed to do with all of it? Do we enjoy it? How much? Can we enjoy them too much? What does it look like? If we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, does that mean that there's nothing left for anything else in all the world? Well, I want to attempt to answer that question by looking at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. The title of my sermon this morning is A Rich Provider. And the key words for our worshipers and training are enjoy God and treasure. Before we go any further, though, I I do want to give credit where credit is due. Much of my thinking this morning has been shaped and informed by one of my professors in college. Uh, His name is Joe Rigney. He's written a book called The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. And so a lot of what I have to say this morning either comes from the book or from conversations that I've had with him. And so I thank God for Joe publicly and hope that He's a help to us this morning. And so, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, reads, As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This passage essentially is a PS, I think, to the end of Paul's letter to Timothy. Timothy was a traveling companion of Paul's who had left Ephesus to uh, had been left in Ephesus to oversee the life and health of the church there. And in this letter Paul basically is seeking to accomplish two things. First, he is warning the Ephesians through Timothy about false teaching that was creeping into their midst. And secondly, he is seeking to instruct the Christians there more generally concerning their conduct and life within the church. And so after Paul concludes the body of this letter, he... he he ends with this, um, this benediction, this praise to the immortal God, but then he picks his pen back up, and I think he's aiming to balance in these verses what he's just said, particularly in uh, chapters 5 and especially 6. The false teaching that Paul is combating is, it has a lot of characteristics, but one in particular is that it is plagued by a love of money. We see this in chapter 6, 3 through 11. We won't read all of that, but note in verse 5, he says that these false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of 
gain. And then skipping down to verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What strong language. And he tells Timothy in the next verse, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. I think so strong that Paul picks his pen back up and adds verses 17 and 19. And he does so because he wants to prevent Timothy or anyone else from thinking that he is condemning anyone who is rich. Philip Ryken, the current president of Wheaton College in Illinois, makes this comment concerning the purpose of these verses. The warning in chapter 5, he says, left by itself, 5 and 6, left by itself might give the impression that it's wrong for Christians to be rich. This would have been the wrong impression, for there is nothing wrong with money in and of itself. The gospel is for the haves as well as the have-nots. And so Paul adds these words to the rich to help guide those who are not materially impoverished to know how to relate to their wealth. Now, before we check out it all, how do we define rich? Rich is a relative term, and no doubt within this room we have slightly various levels of, you know, fitting in with the socioeconomic strata especially in our Western culture mindset. But compared to the world standard, the people who live on planet Earth, we are all pretty rich, I'd say. Um, I found a website. um, It's called globalrichlist.com, assuming that it's accurate. If you make $200,000 a year, you are in the top 0.04% of the wealthiest people on planet Earth. That means that 99.96% of the world's population makes less money per year than you do. If you make $120,000 a year, you're in the top 0.07%. $80,000 a year is the top 0.1%. $25,000 a year, the top 2%. 98% of the world's population still makes less money than you do if you bring in $25,000 a year. Now, here was the kicker for me. Uh, the U.S. poverty line is just above $11,000. If a person makes $11,000, so for the single single household, $11,000, poverty line. So if you make $11,000 a year, you are still in the top 15%. 85% of the world still makes less money than you do. That doesn't qualify all of us in this room to listen up to what Paul has to say here. I don't know what does. Now, I don't say this to cast guilt at all. Not bringing these numbers up to 
want you to feel guilty for the wealth that God has given you. I want it to inform us, to wake us up to the reality that indeed God has given us a lot, both financially and in other ways as well. And I want this passage to be a great blessing to us to know what to do with that which he's given us. Um, Additionally, biblically speaking, Paul says uh, in chapter 6 that if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So Paul's level of like what does it mean to be like doing all right is if you cannot starve or freeze to death. And so what do we do? what God's given us. What is his word to the rich? Well, we'll consider this passage under three headings. In verse 17, we'll see that Paul sets forth God as a rich provider. Secondly, in verse 18, Paul exhorts those who have richly received from God to have a rich response. And in verse 19, Paul will point us forward to the rich eternity that awaits those who have stored up for themselves a good foundation as they were rich toward God. So first, God is a rich provider. Paul begins this passage saying, as for the rich in the present age, in the phrase, the present age, Paul both delimits the scope of the people that he's addressing and he sets up a contrast that he will make in verse 19 about those who are rich in the future age. The word rich here means essentially what you would expect, those who are materially, financially well off. So that's his audience, those who have much by way of material possessions. And obviously when you think of what money you bring in versus what you keep and what you're worth and wealth and all that, there's a lot of uh, things to consider there, but... Um, in the wealthiest nation in the world, history of the world, we can listen to Paul. And so Paul exhorts Timothy to instruct the rich in how they should relate to their riches. And it comes with both a negative and a positive exhortation. Negatively, he says, do not be haughty. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to trust in the uncertainty of riches. So each of these in turn. What does it mean to be haughty? Haughtiness is pride. Why does Paul instruct the rich not to be prideful? Well, for one, because Proverbs 3, 34 tells us that God opposes the proud. So rich or poor, don't be proud. But why here to the rich? Well, riches have a way of tempting one toward pride. The temptation is to think that one's Possession of great monetary value increases his value or her value as a person. Perhaps the rich may be tempted to think that they are more important than others who have less money than they do. We see this in the business world all the time. Sadly, more sadly, we see it in the church as well. Where in some churches, members basically run the church because of the threat of them and their tithes and offerings leaving with them. The ones with the biggest pockets get deference. Well, Paul warns against this kind of thinking. And he strictly and he forcefully tells those in Ephesus who are wealthy, don't be proud because of your wealth. 
Well, secondly, he says, do not trust in the uncertainty of riches. In the previous word, he warns against pride. What's he warning against here? He warns against a false sense of security. Don't we as Americans struggle with this? This security based on the economy. When the dollar is strong or was strong, when the economy is booming, when money abounds, we are at rest and at ease. This is the air we breathe. When the dollar's not doing well, when the economy is falling, when money is lacking, we freak out. But Paul doesn't merely say, don't trust in riches. He could have said that, but he says, don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. For those who have lived longer in the world for than five minutes, if, we've, if you've been alive for five minutes or more, then you know that riches are a shaky foundation. You should know that. Take, for example, the parable that Jesus tells of the rich fool in Luke 12, 19 through 21. He tells a story of a man who, he has a land that produces plentifully. And the man decides to what? Build bigger barns because his current barns can't hold all of his crops. And he says, so you've got everything. Rest, eat, drink, be merry. You've got goods laid up for yourself for years and years and years to come. And then he dies. And God says, fool, where is your stuff going now? And all his hoarding was for naught. The man trusted in the uncertainty of his riches. Uh, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. It's a great text, and it speaks very clearly to the uncertainty of riches. It says, don't toil to acquire wealth. When your eyes light upon it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Money is fleeting and it does not last. Riches cannot be trusted. This then is the first thought in Paul's command to the rich. He says, do not allow your riches to promote pride in your heart or false senses of security. For riches are here today and gone tomorrow. So that's negatively what he charges the rich. Positively, how does he charge the rich? He says, to those under the care of Timothy who are financially well off to not set their hope in riches, but to set their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What an astounding statement. Well, Patrick Fairbairn makes a stunning comment on Paul's words in verse 17. He says, The contrast to such an insecure foundation as riches is God, the eternal, the all-sufficient, who ministers richly to his people's necessities and just desires, and who as a source of enjoyment to those who trust in him can never fail. Timothy is to urge the saints at Ephesus not to set their hope on riches, but to set their hope on God. Why? Because God richly provides them with everything to enjoy, and God can never fail. 
What a surprise this statement probably came to the saints under Timothy's care. Imagine, Paul has been beating the drum of modesty and decrying the incipient dangers in wealth. And he comes directly to address the rich. I know the look that they had in their eyes. I see it in my students at school a lot. I'm talking to the class generally, and then I you look in on someone, and they're like, so this is them. They're like, okay, he says to the rich, what's he going to say? Give it away. Be done with it. It will ruin you. He says, rich people, God gave you what he gave you to enjoy. What? They're probably, in their minds, if they're thinking of Jesus' words, if they were familiar with them, that it's nearly impossible for a rich man to enter heaven, they're like, come again? It's a stunning statement. And I think this statement is a, a help to our problem. Do we love God or do we enjoy fresh raspberries, frozen yogurt, iced tea, the laughter of children, the chirping of birds, the smell in the air in the fall as everyone has a fire going in his backyard? Paul says both. And this is the point where I especially derive help from my college professor. Joe offers forth two ways that we can relate to our stuff and how we relate to God and our stuff and how that relationship works. We can take a comparative approach and we can take an integrated approach. When we consider God and the things of earth comparatively, we echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73 or 27. There's nothing on earth that I desired besides you. When comparing the worth and value of God and everything else in all creation, God wins every single time. If you're forced to choose between God and a trip to the beach, obviously you choose God. If it was something else, the mountains maybe, just kidding. You choose God comparatively. If you choose God between God and your spouse, God. God and your child, God. God in anything, you choose God. Don't set your hope on anything in the entire universe. Set your hope on God. The man that Jesus is talking about, the rich man who doesn't enter heaven, doesn't enter heaven because he's rich. He enters heavens because he looks at his riches. He looks at God comparatively and says, I'll have my boat. But what about when we consider God and ourselves in an integrated way? There's, there's no need to choose. You're not choosing which one's better. God gives you these things to enjoy, and we enjoy them so that we might enjoy God more in the process. Joe taught me this. Sold out, zealous, abandoned, burning love for God, when it meets ultimate Frisbee, looks like really enjoying ultimate Frisbee. Love for God looks like savoring each bite at the schnitzel shack when we meet that splendid German Thai cuisine that we have right here in our backyard. Love for God looks like getting lost in the eyes of your lover 
when it meets those bewitching brown beauties. Flip back to Genesis 2 for a second. I heard uh, Joe give a talk down in Orlando, the Ligonier Conference, when I was down there in April, and he had some really great insights from this passage on this subject, and so I want to offer them to you. It, Genesis 2, 8, 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Skipping down to verse 15. And the Lord God commanded the man, or uh, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What's the first command that God gives Adam? Perhaps it's not what you think. He says, eat. He says, eat freely of every tree in the garden. Before he issued the command not to eat, he gave him the command to eat, to eat abundantly. So in the middle of all of this creation, commands the man, he gives him his charge. He looks at what's going on and he says that something's missing. It's interesting. The way the account's gone so far, day after day after day, God has looked at what he's made and at the end of each day he said, good, 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 and good. He gets to day six, the middle of it, and he says, something's wrong. This is not good. Now, Would it not have been completely inappropriate and out of place for Adam to turn around and say, what do you mean? I have you, God. Yes, but that is beside the point that God is making here. Adam needs a helper. God has richly provided Adam with food to eat, a commission to carry out, and he additionally says that he will provide a helper fit for Adam to help him with this task. There's not one found on earth. They looked. So God says that he will make one. And I love what Joe said about this. He said, God took a rib from Adam and then he gave it back with interest. So one last thing that I learned from Joe here in Genesis 2, and we'll get back to 1 Timothy. Verse 23. Do you notice anything interesting about this passage? Verse 23 says, Adam, he sees Eve for the first time. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. These are the first words, first spoken words of a human recorded in the Bible. The first words that God deemed essential to be included in his sacred word is Adam's response to seeing Eve for the first time. The first spoken words of man recorded in Scripture are a song of praise to another human. He wasn't sinning. 
God is not a miser. Time and time again, he gives good and great gifts for his people to enjoy. He even gives gifts to unbelievers. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. God makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. God doesn't give us things and then demand that we derive as little pleasure out of them as possible. Just survive, folks. Rather, Paul says in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, we quoted earlier, that everything's created by God. It's good. It's to be, not to be rejected, but to be received with thanksgiving. And so God gives us gifts to enjoy, to increase our satisfaction in him as we thank him for them. And so we are then to think when we come across a beautiful work of art, an enchanting song, a delicious fish taco, thank you, God, for this gift. And then we enjoy every moment we have with it. For in the enjoyment of the gift, we can enjoy God as the giver. We worship God through the gifts. Now we'll talk about how that can go wrong, but God says, the gifts to enjoy. So enjoy them. Well, great. Speaking of it going wrong, might we say, good, God gave us stuff to enjoy, and enjoy them we shall. Forget everyone else. No. Back to First Timothy, and these two points are much shorter than the first one. Chapter 6, verse 18. Uh, in verse 18, our English Bibles begins with a new sentence. But Paul really just keeps right on going, and he says, God, he's given you rich people things to enjoy, and then he gives three infinitives. He says, um, and they fill out the reason that God is generous to the rich. God richly provides men with what they have, not just to enjoy, but he says to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Philip Ryken again says, The reason we're able to be so generous is that we have a generous God. God is richer than the richest man who ever lived. He not only owns the cattle in a thousand hills, Psalm 50, but he also owns the hills. God doesn't hoard his treasure, though. And commenting on the the phrase to be rich in good works or good deeds, Riken says, this splendid phrase completely reverses the values of the world. Everyone wants to be rich, but are you rich in good deeds? The trouble is that when it comes to doing good deeds, most Christians are lower middle class at best. We've never learned that the way to be truly wealthy is to give our lives away for Jesus Christ. True riches are found in the giving, not in the having. With his sentiment echoes the words of our Lord, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so God gives generously to men not so that they may be misers and hoard it for themselves, but so that they may, one, enjoy it, but two, that they can give it away and do so liberally. Notice, though, of these three infinitives, really, the first two don't even require any money. You can do good and be rich in good deeds and be completely broke. God is not a beggar. God is not expecting the rich to solve the world's problems with their money and then be done with it. They are to give of themselves. 
we are to give of ourselves. And that will include that we hold out our riches with an open hand to those who are in need, being generous and ready to share. We don't want to be like the man in the parable that Jesus tells us, who he was rich, but he wasn't rich toward God. Well, thirdly then, we've seen God is a rich provider and how we should then have a rich response. What about a rich eternity? Verse 19, we see the hope of a rich eternity for those who are rich toward God. Here Paul continues his thought, and he gives a a motivation or a result that will happen as the rich respond with the riches in the way that he outlines in 17 and 18, that they enjoyed them and they give them away. He says that by doing so, they will actually store up for themselves a good foundation for the future. One commentator says that here the, the metaphor of, of, of wealth has been extended eschatologically to the future age in its consummation, he means. So in their good deeds, in our good deeds and richness toward God and others, the rich actually lay up for themselves treasure. But this treasure is not for now. The rich in this present age store up treasure for the future by, being good, by doing good and being rich in good deeds. We see this in chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says that bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, perhaps someone's thinking, I thought we were saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law. Is Paul here saying that by doing good, being rich in good works, and giving generously, we can save ourselves? No. He is saying, as he has in other places, that good works evidence themselves as a result of faith. He says nothing different than what Jesus does in Matthew 6, 19, 19 through 21, about not storing up for yourself treasure on earth, but treasure in heaven. He urges Jesus, his disciples, to lay up not temporary, fleeting treasure, but permanent, lasting treasure in heaven. Now, spoiler alert, I'm not exactly sure what these treasures are. I'm just very confident, based on this passage and others. We read one in uh, Revelation earlier. Um, I won't find it, but in Sunday school that was uh, really fitting. I should have written it down. Um, You can find it later. Let me know. Paul says that by using the treasure that God... So... I'm convinced that these treasures exist. And Paul says that by, by using the treasures that God has given us now to do good and bless others, we lay up for ourselves those treasures that are yet to come. This is not a doctrine of works righteousness. To be clear, Jesus and Paul are saying that in response to the gift of salvation that God has given you, that you could never earn, and the other gifts he's given you, you use your possessions to include your very life in such a way to prepare for the life which is to come for the future. Don't set your hope on the present. Look to the future. How do we know that Paul means the future future and not like retirement? 
Well, Paul says, you do this so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul urges Timothy to urge the wealthy in his flock to use their wealth in such a way that they may lay hold, not of more treasure on earth, which is fleeting and temporary and uncertain, but that which is truly life. The rich are tempted to find their life in their stuff. Paul says, look elsewhere. And it's to that person to whom we must now all look that I want to turn as we begin landing this plane. Are you proud because of your riches? Are you setting your hope and your hopes and dreams on the uncertainty of those riches? Don't. I beg you. James says that the man who has nothing to, to depend upon except his riches will fade like a flower. Set your hope on God. God killed his son for you. Jesus was rich beyond all comparison. But he became poor so that we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Jesus left his throne in heaven and took the form of a servant and being found in human flesh, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He lived a perfect, sinless life, died a sinner's death, and rose victorious over death since he was a suitable substitute in God's sight for men and women like you and me who have loved the gifts of God instead of God himself. We have taken the good gifts that God has given us and comparatively said, I don't want God, I want pleasure. I want fulfillment. We have attempted to squeeze infinity out of the finite. We have abused the gifts of God that he has given us. We have held on to them with tight fist, and we have dared the heavens to come and pry them out of our dead, lifeless fingers. And he will. But if we have turned... If we have repented and do so daily, we have oriented our lives and ourselves so that we treasure God above all else, comparatively speaking. And we seek to enjoy the use of the things of earth so that we and others might experience the most good both here and now, here now and in the life to come, especially in the life to come. We have peace If we have repented from our idolatry, we will be saved. And so I invite you, anyone in this room, if you have not done that, if you find yourself this morning treasuring your earthly gifts, whether it be money or family or fame or pleasure, repent, place your trust faith, hope, and delight in the ever-satisfying Son of God, Jesus Christ, so that you too will find everlasting peace with God. Three things, really quick, and we'll be done. What do we, the rest of us then, what do we do? Well, I, I want Professor Rigney to benefit us once more. And the talk that he gave in Orlando, he taught me three things. How do we respond to the gifts that God's given us? We worship first. 
We worship God through the enjoyment of the gift. He says, we ought to respond in worship. When you see a clear blue sky or a dazzling display in the clouds during a sunset, when you take the first bite into a Chick-fil-A sandwich or the first sip of water after playing yard, playing out in the yard with the kids, worship God. We tend to think that the more we love God, the less that we're supposed to love other things. I don't think that's true. I think in a few minutes when we go and have our fellowship meal in 400 building, I think the food ought to taste better. In the light of the glory of Jesus Christ, I don't love my wife less. I love her more. She is more lovely to me. My friends are dearer to me because of the glory I see in them of Jesus Christ. Work is more rewarding to me because I do it for the true king. So don't leave here feeling guilty because you enjoy picnics in the park or you love spending Sunday afternoons with your family enjoying great meals. Dive in. Enjoy the things that God has given you because he gave them to you to enjoy. And in that enjoyment that you would come to enjoy him even more. Enjoy the gifts. Worship the giver. Second, we respond to God's generosity not only by enjoying our gifts, but by giving them away. We ought to respond in generosity. Be givers, not keepers. Don't aim to amass for yourselves great amounts of wealth. God has blessed you with this wealth so that you can bless others. Don't hold on to it tight-fistedly so tight-fistedly that you refuse to help anyone in need. John tells us in his epistle that if we have the world's goods and shut our hearts off to a brother in need, we are liars and the love of God is not in us. And we're not just talking about money. We're talking about all of our disposable resources. Time, talents, possessions, money, energy, etc. God gave you those things so that he might call you to use those things for the good of others. So leave off your claim to everything in this life that you can call a possession and live for God's glory and for the good of others with it. Put to death soul-shrinking selfishness and give as you have been given to. Give liberally, joyfully, and give until it hurts. And that brings us to the last thing. We respond to God's generosity by enjoying it, by giving it away to others, and by suffering the loss of it. We respond with patient, humble, and enduring suffering. If the giving is voluntary loss of your earth earthly possessions. This is involuntary loss of earthly possessions. God's gifts are not meant to shrink our hearts and cause us to be hoarders, but to expand our hearts and cause us to be givers. So how do we respond when those heart-expanding gifts of God that increase our love for Him are ripped from our hearts? How do we respond when the things of earth that God has graciously bestowed on us are stripped from our fingers? 
everything we've said this morning comes unraveled if we can't respond appropriately to suffering and loss. We've all experienced it to some degree or another. We lose jobs, we lose money, we lose pets, friends, husbands, wives, children. We lose physical abilities, we lose mental abilities. One author describes it this way. Unstable jobs, he describes the world. Unstable jobs, orphans, judicial corruption, blown tires, broken legs, sex trafficking, leaky faucets, divine sovereignty versus human responsibility, failed adoptions, monthly bills, envy, project deadlines, rainy vacations, broken marriages, chronic back pain, pride, pornography, slippery roads, severed relationships, selfishness, racism, bee stings, abortion, and the ever-present threat of death of our loved ones or eventually even ourselves. This is our world. Genesis 3, Revelation 20, we deal with these things. So how do we respond to these problems and to others that you're probably thinking of right now? Do we respond with clenched fists and raised voices to the heavens? Do we question and gripe and complain because God's plan for us was different than our plan for us? How wise we are. What do we do when the money runs out? What do you do when you get sick and it's cancer? What do you do when your child gets sick and it's cancer? What do you do when the storm comes and obliterates every physical possession that you own? What will you do when perhaps some of us are in jail in the near future for speaking the truth and love as Christians? Will you rage against heaven? Will you curse God and die? Or will you say with Job, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. It is impossible for a rich man to get into heaven, almost, Jesus says. But suffering tests our loyalties, right? That was his problem. He loved the gifts instead of the giver. Suffering tests our loyalties. It tests you. We're about to sing in Christ alone. So is that true? Is that true for you? Do you really mean it? Are you really banking your life here and now and forever on the person and work of Jesus Christ and him alone? Or are you banking in your riches or your righteousness or your dad's righteousness, your grandpa's righteousness, whatever? What is it? Lastly, I'm not calling us to, in suffering, to be aloof and distant. We don't... Don't hold everything at an arm's length because it might someday be taken away from you. No. I'm saying hold everything that God has given you as close as you can, as near and dear to your soul, knowing that it will one day be taken away from you. Love your spouse fervently and sacrificially. Love your children with everything that you possess. Love your friends. Love the smell of fresh-cut grass. Love the taste of mom's blueberry pie. Love the warmth of dad's hugs. And grieve deeply when your earthly joys are taken away from you. 
Grieve deeply. Love deeply. Love with your entire being, knowing that if, and more importantly, when you lose these things, you are resting in the arms of the Almighty God who has given them to you to enjoy. And even though that you don't have those things anymore, you always have God who gave His Son for you. His most priceless, precious possession, He slaughtered so that He might have you. Hebrews tells us that we look forward to the city that is to come where God's people will dwell with Him for all eternity, having inherited an unshakable kingdom. And so it is this hope, this longing, this reality that sustains us in the midst of suffering, loss, and death. And so to the rich among us, I close with this. Don't be proud. Don't set your hope on the things of earth, but set your hope on God who has liberally lavished upon you those things of earth that you have so that you might enjoy them, do good with them, and give them away. And in doing so, you will accumulate wealth, but not wealth for the here and now, but in the age to come so that you may possess that which is true, real, and everlasting life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that through your servant this morning that it would go out loud and clear. I am weak and feeble and inadequate, but your word is not. Your word is strong and powerful. If there's been any, been any untrue thing said, I pray that it would pass by us, leaving no impression upon us. But the truth that has been uttered, I pray that you would etch it deeply into our souls. Enable us, O oh God, to love you and to love the things that you've given us, not as ends in themselves, but as means to enjoying you, our ultimate treasure, who lives forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.